Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about the future of nursing, GSM, acts of kindness and happiness, conspiracy theorists, and also getting into those sex positions. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Zach Smith was a former bedside nurse. Whenever I can get a nurse to join me on the program, it's a good night. Uh, before he, uh, After he was a bedside nurse, he created NurseGrid. It's a free mobile app for nurses that allows them to manage their schedule and also connect with colleagues. It's been downloaded over 2 million times by nurses. Later, Zach worked for another nurse startup leading their branding and marketing to nearly $4 million in sales within the first year. Zach is a consultant for healthcare companies looking to reach and engage with nurses. He's also a stay-at-home dad and joins me on the line from Washington State. Good evening, Zach. Hi, Maureen. Great to be with you. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, So we've got lots to talk about here. I I just want to get your barometer on the state of affairs in nursing these days. We're seeing nurses who have just uh, recently gone out on strike uh, in New York. We're hearing about nurses leaving the profession. You know, the pandemic was tough. Um, A lot of nurses were applauded early on, and then a lot of nurses were uh, shamed and and screamed at and blamed um, for the pandemic. It's been a tough few years. And, you know, there's always seemingly a shortage of nurses. Nurses are typically underpaid and overworked. Um, But lately, it's gotten really bad. You're somebody who has parlayed their career from the bedside to business, um, which is, you know, kind of a nice thing, perhaps. And and now you're also uh, a stay-at-home dad. And your wife, I understand it, is a travel nurse. Um, sounds like you've got it all. You're, you're doing it all right over there, Zach. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're hanging in there, but you know, it's a, it's a hard time for nurses and, and I'm not talking about myself because I've moved on past the bedside, but for those that are still at the bedside, like my wife and so many of my friends out there, it's just really hard. And, and I try to use my position and the podium I have to speak out on behalf of them because, um, they need uh, all the voices and all the support they can get right now. And what are you hearing from your wife and from your um, nurse colleagues? Uh, what, what are some of the challenge that they're fa- challenges that they are facing at the bedside in the hospitals? Well, you know, it, it all starts with the sort of understaffing. And, you know, nursing is a hard career to go into, period, um, before the pandemic. Uh, but the pandemic mm-hmm. really sort of broke uh, things for the nursing system and, and the healthcare system. And so what happened was hospitals were already staffing uh, their units with sort of razor thin margins, meaning like you as a nurse can have, you know, uh, two, three, four, five patients sort of depending on the acuity level of your unit. Um, and they'll staff just, just to those numbers because that's the, the best way to sort of increase your margins and maximize profitability as a business, as a hospital, um, trying to, uh, uh, you know, run those margins. And then the, the pandemic hit where we had censuses, we had increased amounts of patients, and then we had no nurses left to sort of meet that demand. And so, the stress really got put on the frontline caregivers, those individuals who are delivering the care, delivering the orders that, that are being set out in the procedures. And those nurses uh, really just felt all that stress. And so through those two years, it felt like nurses were just kind of holding the system up on their shoulders. And I know a lot of my, my colleagues felt if we could just get past the, the, you know, the pandemic, 
then maybe things will go back to where they were. But so many people burned out during uh, during the pandemic because um, they were already are on the, the, the fringes that um, now we're left with a sort of severe shortage of nurses willing to work in the current conditions or at least willing to work for the current pay. And that just stresses everything out. It makes everything so much more difficult to deliver the proper care that you need to as a nurse, but also just to be the type of nurse you want to be. And so I really try to speak uh, on behalf of all those that, that talk to me about the challenges they're going through uh, and, and help them out because we need to be more aware of this issue. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to do what we can to help nurses uh, get to where they need to be. We speak, you speak so eloquently about this subject, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and, you know, hospitals are big business today, and, you know, definitely in the U.S., and a little bit less so in Canada, but but certainly, you know, you talk about profit, profit margins, and, you know, it's, it's really the, what, what matters is the, the bottom line, uh, the dollar, and if they can cut, they're going to cut in the most uh, expensive area, which happens to be staffing. And, and hospitals are largely staffed by nurses. Uh, recently at um, Mount Sinai, there was a strike with the nurses. They were offered a 25% increase in pay, but they actually wanted to be assured that they were given additional nurses. So, so there, there had to be increased budgets to be able to hire more nurses. Now, where they're going to get those nurses, I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> to be honest with you, because as you say, a lot of them have left the profession. So I I believe the app that you created, NurseGrid, um, is a bit of a support for, I took a look at it, it's a bit of a support for nurses. Um, nurses, as you say, it's a tough position, a tough career to enter. It's 12-hour shifts. It's every other, every third weekend, it's nights, it's weekends, it's holidays. Um, and, you know, your schedule is, is often on a rotation, in Canada anyway it is. It's, sometimes it can be different in the, in the U.S. But, um, you know, this allows nurses to, well, you tell me exactly what it allows nurses to do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I feel fortunate to be on the team that, that helped bring this to life and uh, and, and being one of the, the two nurses was on the team, you know, Joe, the, the founder, was, uh, was a nurse himself. And a lot of what we were trying to do was bring technology specifically for the nursing community and all those other nursing professionals out there like CNAs and techs and, and, and folks like that. Uh, and so what we found was that uh, oftentimes inside of hospitals, all these decisions are being made for nurses without the nurse's input. And it can almost feel, uh, you know, belittling as a nurse. And, and I'm not even, you know, talking about staffing necessarily, even though that is sort of the biggest thing. But even when it comes to technology, nurses are expected to use the technology that their system hands down to them to use. And oftentimes it's so, it's so old and outdated and clunky and, and confusing. And, and if, if they would have listened to their nurses, their nurses would tell them, this doesn't make any sense for my workflow. This doesn't make any sense for you know, the way I operate in my life and, and how we use technology on the unit or in our personal lives. And so what we wanted to do was draw on our own personal experiences as nurses and create this app to help them manage their schedule in a way that nurses think about uh, their schedules um, and also connect with colleagues and uh, increase transparency into other people's schedules. Um, you know, they have access to these schedules, but lots of times you have to be logged into the hospital intranet uh, meaning you have to be like on the premises to log into the software to see it. And it's usually just sort of a string of lines and codes that um, don't make much sense until you study the legend. So we created a user-friendly app, really easy to enter uh, and add your schedule. Then you can see who you work with on various shifts. 
uh, after you connect with your colleagues and you can see their schedules and things like that too. And what it was, and, and one of the reasons why we had so much success and it's rated so well is just because when you use it and you feel it, you can tell there are nurses behind it. And if nothing else, that just sends a message to nurses that, hey, we're thinking about you, we care about you, we are one of you, and we want to build technology and deliver services and, and, and products that meet your needs specifically. And as a nurse, that just that it feels so good to know that there are businesses out there who are thinking about me as the individual, the nurse. And that's what we tried to do at NurseGrade, and that's what I've tried to do in my career as I've extended it on um, past, those, uh, past those days. Yeah, it's fantastic work. May I ask you, um, NurseGrid, is it per user or do you sell this also to hospitals so that everybody on the unit can enter their schedules? And one of the benefits that I could see is that if you know everybody else's schedules, you can actually see, well, I can't work Friday night, but I'm scheduled. But, you know, I see that Janie is off or Bob is off and maybe I can trade with them. Uh, so how, how do you actually, how's this implemented? Yeah, the, the mobile app is free for uh, for anyone who wants to download it. Uh, unfortunately, just in the United States. I know you have some Canada listeners as well, and, and that has been on the radar um, of, the, of the team that now runs NurseGrid since uh, it was acquired uh, a few years ago. Uh, but uh, in the United States, at least, any nurse can download it for free uh, and use themselves. Any non-nurse can download it and check it out, too. They're, they're more than willing to or more than able to. Um, but uh, we also uh, created and sold technology that connected to that. And so we would sell that to hospitals or healthcare facilities, and they could then you know, take the schedule, uh, they could you know, build the schedule, click a button, and it would send it out to everyone's phone. So no more waiting until you walk onto the hospital or premises to find out uh, what mm-hmm. your schedule is going to be like a few months from now. It'll just sort of pop up on your phone in the sort of, you know, user interface that we designed for nurses. So um, that was the, the key. That was how we, we, you know, made money off of it. But really just getting so many nurses um, to, to rate something so high and to use it uh, and to have so much passion for it was a huge win for us. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we've seen other companies sort of follow suit, which has been really great to see that there are other businesses out there trying to create technology products businesses for nurses themselves too, as, as nurses have gotten more attention over the last years. My guest is Zach Smith, a former bedside nurse who created NurseGrid, a free mobile app for nurses that allows them to manage their schedule and connect with colleagues. He is also a healthcare consultant. He's worked for another nurse startup, leading their brand in marketing, selling shoes to nurses to the tune of $4 million in sales within the first year. Zach, you're quite an accomplished stay-at-home dad. <laughs> Well, you know, that's my number one duty, but uh, I, I love being a nurse entrepreneur as well. Excellent. So I'd like you to speak to those nurses out there who are burnt out, fed up, tired, exhausted, depleted. They've had it, sad, thinking, what am I ever going to do? Um, I don't want to go back to the bedside. I don't want to work 12-hour shifts. I don't want to work every other weekend. I don't want to work holidays anymore. And I'm, I'm not trying to take nurses away, but some nurses have made this decision. Are there business opportunities for nurses? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think nurses make incredible business people. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, as a nurse, um, you know, you're providing not just, you know, uh, medical care and sometimes extremely complicated medical care and having to make decisions on the fly and make assessments, but you're also providing customer support for the hospital, for the doctor or whoever it might be, face-to-face. And if you think about uh, what businesses have to deal with, a lot of it is, you know, dealing with 
dealing with, with customers or potential customers and clients and folks like that, um, where you're handling them on the phone or through a computer screen. It doesn't get more intense than being a nurse and handling everything that's being thrown at you all at once um, in people's most intense moments of their entire life. And so you take that sort of, you know, uh, pressure cooker that nurses are used to every single shift uh, 24-7, and you can see how they make really good business people. And so I think more businesses need to look to nurses uh, uh, as potential uh, as potential, uh, you know, fillers for some of the roles they have. I think nurses need to reach out. Lots of times nurses have this sort of sense of imposter syndrome where they're like, well, I'm just a nurse. What do I know about business? And I've had that my entire life. And it, it took a long time to sort of talk myself out of it. And that like, I do have skills that can be applied to business in a number of ways. And so I really try to encourage a lot of nurses to um, explore opportunities um, past the bedside uh, and sometimes even just looking can be a bit of a pressure release to know that I'm not trapped here at the bedside position. I can still use um, the skills I've gathered as a nurse and apply them in the business world. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I left the bedside myself. I, I continued in clinical practice in a different way, um, but also, you know, have, have dabbled in lots of different aspects of healthcare and healthcare is big business today. And, and people are looking for the knowledge and the understanding about particular medical conditions. And, um, you know, so I think that, you know, it's um, a a very opportune time for nurses to look elsewhere and, and try their hand at something else. You know, nurses, most nurses are, are female still, uh, more and more men are entering the profession, but women have a tendency to say, I'm not qualified. I only looking at a position or a job description, you know, I don't have all of the qualifications where I think guys have a tendency and I'm very much generalizing here to say, I don't have any of these qualifications. <laughs> I think I'll apply anyway. No, <laughs> I, that's an exaggeration of course, but, um, but you're right. I think uh, nurses don't appreciate their own experience and their own ability uh, to multitask. What do you think the future of nursing is? Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think technology is going to play a bigger and bigger role in nursing. And so we've got to get nurses involved in the forefront of this movement in technology. Um, even, you know, a lot of staffing firms, a lot of, uh, you know, of course, Nurse Grid was, was in the, the scheduling space. Um, but there are so many different aspects to, to healthcare that is being digitized, uh, and mm-hmm. is, uh, and we need nurses, um, sitting at the table helping to develop these technologies. And so, um, I can't even say specifically what those things are because it really could be a, a number of things, but we've seen it over the years. You know, I'm sure you've seen it, Maureen, with, with the, the changing landscape inside of nursing and how the, and how being a nurse has evolved over the years pretty significantly in the role that, technology has come to play. And so um, how can nurses play a role in making sure that we guide that technology into the right space? Um, That's what I would keep my eye out for and hope that we can get some more uh, of these nurses, in particular women nurses, since it is a, a, you know, I think 88% of the the nursing population are women. We need more women Mm -hmm. nurses involved in these decisions. And if it takes a little bit of the hubris that men sometimes have, um, to feel like they're they're qualified to jump into roles, then so be it. We we just need uh, more nurses and more women nurses involved in in these businesses. We certainly do because n- nurses have the solutions in their head. Zach Smith, thank you so much. Very interesting 
uh, segment. I really appreciate your your time and uh, back to the kids. (laughs) Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. When people are uncomfortable talking about a certain subject, they create clever euphemisms to avoid having to say the actual word. Case in point, the change, the big M, and the best one of all, the Gigi. I'm talking menopause. And although 5 million Canadian women will go through menopause by 2025, many women are still not comfortable talking about it. Keeping mum on menopause can negatively impact one's quality of life. After menopause, women experience changes in and around the vagina that can lead to moderate to severe sexual pain, which may impact a woman's sexual satisfaction. As a nurse conscience advisor and sexual health educator, I am extremely passionate about educating women on menopause, including the lesser known symptoms of menopause, like vaginal dryness, sexual pain, and sexual satisfaction. So I've invited a select group of patients who are willing to share their stories because I think this is important. I hear from so many women in my clinical practice that they have gone for such a long time without proper treatment. I've also invited some esteemed women's healthcare professionals and thought leaders who will be joining me in the coming weeks to educate you about everything menopause. Both of my guests have experienced vaginal dryness personally, like many of you out there, I am sure. Vagina dialogues are not easy, and that is why I am incredibly grateful to have my next two patient guests discuss this critically important subject. Joining me on the lines are Deb and Kim. Good evening, ladies. Hello. What a pleasure. Oh, so nice to have you. So, Deb, how are you? I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I'm excited. Good to talk Oh, good. <laughs> Great. Well, Thank you, you know. so much. Yes. Hey, sharing is good, especially with yes. this subject, because so many women mm-hmm. with a vagina suffer. Yeah. And Kim, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, good. I hope you're not too jet lagged. <clears throat> I know you just landed from London. I did. Yes. I'm, oh, uh, welcome back. I'll go to bed after the call. <laughs> welcome home anyway so we'll just kind of have a little ladies chat little coffee clutch here um just talking about it just talking about vaginal dryness because it's just such an important subject it's so common uh at, at menopause and and at other times in a woman's life um it's not the only time, but we're, the focus here is menopause and post-menopause. And so this is something that both of you have experienced, um, you know, in your journeys. Now, um, Deb, had you ever heard of vaginal dryness prior to being diagnosed with it? No. And, you know, I have to say, I'll be transparent and, and share that when we actually had a conversation about it, um, I don't know if you recall, obviously I probably remember more than you do in the sense that it was, we, it was like, Hey, you know, I've got this thing going on in my life. Like I can't lose weight around my mid drift and, you know, maybe it's menopausal. And I'm like, Oh no, I don't have all the regular symptoms that someone would have as if I would know what they all would be. First of all, I think that was my first awakening, realizing that there was many more symptoms than I knew. The second thing is, we're like, oh, hey, let's do an exam. And when you told me that I had, you know, that I w- that it was dry, I was like, for me, because when I'm having sex, I have moisture, it didn't occur to me that I could be moist in one area and dry in the other. And 
So it was, I had not heard of it. I had not had anyone share with me. And I, as you um, have spent a lot of time talking to clients and I've been in the health and wellness business for a long time, no one had a conversation. And I certainly didn't understand the depths of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. bring up such a great point about uh, vaginal exams. It's so important to have a look at the tissues, to have somebody who is experienced looking at the tissues, not just assume, okay, it's I have vaginal dryness, I'm just going to treat myself. Um, it's so important to go to a healthcare provider and have that examination and also so that you can um, follow up, you know, after you are treated, mm-hmm. then take a look at the tissues two to three months down the road and then a year and then annually, um, once the treatment that you use optimizes, which typically takes about two to three months. How did it impact you? Uh, you mentioned a little bit, um, that you had moisture during sex, but, um, mm-hmm. how did it impact your, in particular, your intimate life? Well, you know what? Honestly, I don't know if I've ever done anything that has been such uh, such a drastic change to my sex life. So I I was and did not consider myself someone that was having challenges sexually. Um, I was enjoying what I was enjoying, not knowing it could be better. Really, like I just didn't realize. And when you honestly, when you said, oh, you're dry, I'm like, what are you talking about? I, you know, I get moist enough or wet enough that I don't experience anything too different. But when I started to use the um, prescription that you had given me, the, the recommendation on using something, it was vaginal suppositories. I was like, oh my, like I was, I was like, oh, and it was, my sex life was so much more satisfying. Like I, it was, I mean, I could, I could orgasm quicker. I could experience sex longer. I didn't want it to be over as quick because as soon as I used to orgasm, I was like, okay, it started to get uncomfortable. But I just thought that was normal. I'm like, well, I've orgasmed. I'm kind of not really. And it's getting more difficult to stay moist until they orgasm or what have you. But really, I didn't realize it was vaginal dryness. And then when I became moist, I was like, oh, it was just so different. It was even different. Um, I, the one thing on there, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be grateful for you forever. And, and um, I'm obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but I'm later in my years of having sexual experience. And I remember you saying to me, you're like, hey, if you ever feel sexual, don't don't lose that opportunity, right? That if you don't use it, you lose it. And so even in um, maintaining myself sexually with myself, having the fact that I the, the, having suppositories used on a regular basis made even that so much different for myself. I don't think I've ever done anything that's made such a difference, to be honest with you. And, and you know, vaginal dryness, I, I do want to say, does require treatment um, because, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I can appreciate this, you know, that it goes around, you know, patients and the mm-hmm. internet, you know, use it or lose it. But, you know, really... Um, Penetrative sex is not a magic wand for vaginal dryness. It still needs Mm -hmm. to be treated. Um, Did you know that uh, vaginal dryness was a symptom of menopause? No, I did not. I did not. I never. Yeah, I think a lot of women don't realize. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. That was a big surprise to me. And you're in like a big girlfriend <laughs> pack, you know, you do a lot of work, uh, advocacy for women and yeah. you're talking to women all the time and, you know, the yeah. fact that you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Kim, just want to uh, bring you in on the conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still there. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah. 
Uh, no, so was vaginal dryness something that you uh, expected in, in life or that you thought about or were educated about prior to uh, the perimenopausal years or uh, postpartum or at any point in your reproductive life? I did not know about it postpartum and actually didn't, didn't experience it postpartum. Um, when I was in perimenopause, I didn't know I was in perimenopause. I'd never actually heard the term when I was going through all of, when I look back now, everything I was experiencing was definitely perimenopause, but at the time I, I didn't know. So all the research that I was doing during that time was pointing me down the path of perimenopause and hormones and menopause. And so I knew about vaginal dryness and also because I work in the women's health space, I also knew. And I would say that I didn't want to look at myself and say, well, that won't happen to me. I, I knew that it was absolutely something that's possible. And I know the majority of women do experience vaginal dryness. So in my mind, I was also looking at it proactively. And I remember you many years ago, we were having a conversation and, and you said we should be moisturizing our vaginas just like our face. And I had never heard that before. And that was such a uh, it's, uh, I will never forget. It's that just as important. And, it's it's more important yeah. that your vagina yeah. is moisture moisturized yeah. than your face, so um, because the, the ones on the face the don't time. work. <laughs> the moisturizers on the, the moisturizers on the face don't even work. But anyway, that's another segment. Yeah. Um, but you were you were doing research. You're in the women's health space. You know, this wasn't something that in, in perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, you had. Uh, and I don't even know where you are in your journey, um, that you had expected. It was through your extensive research that you learned about vaginal dryness. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I was never told by any healthcare provider. It was it was my own research and and people like you who were in my life that, that told me about it. Or any other women. Did any other, I mean, besides me, forget, I don't count. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> No, I think, but. I mean, right now I, I've been post-menopause now for about eight months um, and most of my friend group are, there's a few that are around the same phase as me, but some are still not quite there yet. So it's not, it hasn't been uh, a conversation with all of us. I think some people have come to me just because I knew about it and, and I talked mm -hmm. about it with my girlfriend, but nobody else in my group had, had mentioned it beforehand, no. And and it's a little bit of, it still has that little secrecy to it. Like, you know, I mean, as I've always said, you don't want to sit down at a dinner table and be like, hey, how are you doing? Well, I have vaginal dryness. How are you? Sex life <laughs> yes. is bad. You know, things aren't going well. Um, you know, it's not something that we, you know, talk about. And there is a little bit of, of embarrassment about it, but we really have to normalize this conversation. So um, how about, how has treatment uh, changed your life? So I've, well, I've been using hyaluronic acid for vaginal moisturizer for a couple, well, for I think probably three years, even, I guess it was a little bit after you had first mentioned it to me. And uh, I was doing that proactively because you told me to. And then as I was starting to feel, I didn't want to wait until I absolutely had a major problem, but I was very aware and kind of watching for signs and the first sign that I felt anything was different, I got a vaginal moisture, sorry, a vaginal estrogen suppository as well. And it's like the, there's no, no issues anymore. Nothing. And, and I also just like, if I think about being proactive, I've always 
come from that point of view. I, I, I don't want to wait until I have a problem to try to overcome it. I want to be as proactive as I possibly can. And so knowing the changes that can happen to the tissues, knowing about vaginal atrophy, knowing incontinence, all that sort of stuff, I, I wanted to make sure that I had all the ammunition, <laughs> so to speak, to, uh-huh. uh, to help preserve my tissue and keep it healthy. We are talking VBA, vaginal dryness, GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, and I have two patients on the line, Deb and Kim, who are so, I'm so grateful that you're sharing your stories in the interest of educating other women about this condition that can impact quality of life, sexual desire, sexual satisfaction, sexual pain, and, and that can even almost end a uh, person's sex life. So it's a very important conversation that we're having. Um, what would you, either of you or both of you, say to other women who may be experiencing vaginal dryness um, out there who's listening right now? Deb? Sure. Um, well, you know what? I think the first thing is that for me, I didn't realize that I had anything going on. And so the menopausal um I don't know. The thing that was going on for me was weight gain. And it was that conversation I had with you that was like, well, have you ever had a exam? And I was like, no, not, not outside of what, you know, normally you go and you get with your doctor on a regular, you know, that regular basis, but not specifically for that. So I would say to, to do that because there were symptoms that I heard about this being one of them that I didn't, I didn't associate. I thought it was a sexual issue, not a menopausal issue. (laughs) And I think Very when, I, when I've had, yeah, and I've had conversations, you know what, I've had conversations with partners of women come to me and say that this is a problem. I actually had um, someone that they were going to get married and they decided not to because this was such a problem and she didn't know what to do about it. And I was actually giving them your name. Um, I think that <laughs> it's not one talked about to, um, you know, I'm in my 50s. I don't know if it's generationally. Um, that was, you know, that's also a part of it, just not talking. And I, I'm, I'm so open to me, Maureen, you know what I do for a living. It has never been a conversation that has come up. So again, sexual issue, not menopausal issue, no idea. I also didn't realize by doing something for it when it wasn't as crazy as I heard of these partners talk about like not being able to have sex, that pain was a problem. I didn't even know that it could go to that degree. Um, but nipping it in the bud, I kind of like how you guys were, t- we guys were just talking about that. So I'd say that it is way more prevalent than one thinks. And for me, I think the shame around it or the difficult to talk about it or the da 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 is that it was considered a sexual issue, a sexual challenge issue, not menopausal, which seems to have more normality around it. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and and Kim, what would you say to women out there who might be listening tonight and experiencing vaginal dryness? They might be having sexual pain, decreased sexual satisfaction, low sexual desire. What would be your wisdom? My my main point would be you don't need to suffer. And I think that there's, when we think about the transition to menopause and in perimenopause, there's fluctuations in our libido and sometimes a, a tanking of our libido and sometimes unbeknownst it's because of the pain and the dryness and the irritation and when you experience pain and discomfort obviously that's going to influence your desire and a lot of people don't associate the two so I would say 
it's not something that you need to suffer with. And there are very easy, effective treatments that can make a world of difference. Mm-hmm. And it can impact your relationship if you're in one, because it can also impact your quality of life, even if you're not in a relationship, mm-hmm. just by sitting, riding a bike, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. and, and both of you mentioned uh, different options for um, treating, uh, if you will, vaginal dryness. And, you know, I'm just curious, um, you know, you're satisfied with your, your options. There's everything from personal moisturizers to low-dose localized estrogen. There's a new novel um, Interosa, it's a plant-derived form of DHEA that also is combined with coconut and palm oils. And so that actually helps your body naturally convert um, into inter- androgens and estrogens. And so that helps to moisturize as well. So there's lots of different op- treatment options for um, women. And, and are you both aware that this is lifelong therapy? <laughs> Have you been told yes. that by me at least? News to me, no. Yeah, I, I absolutely intend, and I, I know of several other people, it, it, when they've talked about their patients saying, well, how long do I have to use this? And they say, well, how long do you want to be symptom-free? And and really, it is, it's for the preservation of the, the health of my tissue for the rest of my life. Yeah, absolutely, because one will rebound if they come off of their um, whatever it is that they're utilizing. You know, a personal moisturizer, honestly, it's a little bit more of a Band-Aid solution, but the localized estrogens that are available in a form of a ring or a tablet or a cream and also the um, the Interosa is also, um, those are treatments, mm-hmm. so they actually um, get to the root cause. And so, but it's every right. woman's choice, and my job is, to educate women about the treatment options that are available. Deb, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Great to chat to you again. Absolutely. Thank you. It was my my pleasure to talk about pleasure. Excellent. (laughs) Wonderful. And Kim, thank you so much to you as well. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. If you have any questions or comments, the number to call or text is one 877 399 That's 1-877-399-9898. I wanted to read a... Well, coming up in this hour... <laughs> First of all, we're going to be talking about uh, childhood obesity and fact-checking people's medical stories. Also, you're going to want to stay for this one. We're going to be, in the second half an hour, we are going to be talking about uh, sex positions for people who have been diagnosed with certain medical conditions. But you might want to try these even if you haven't been. Uh, Also going to be talking about kindness and why we need more of that in the world. A couple of emails and text messages here. Um, Hi, Maureen. I used a Premarin cream for my vaginal dryness, and every time I tried to stop using it, my dryness returned. Thank you for those fabulous guests that you just had. If you missed that segment, we were talking about vaginal dryness. But um, this writer says, every time I tried to stop using it, my dryness returned. Sex became painful again. I now know that it is not normal. And somebody else wrote, 
here's the funny thing about that segment you just had, Maureen. I learned something and I realized I learned something every time I listened. I did not know that my vaginal treatment was to be for the rest of my life. Thanks for that. <laughs> Wink. Anyway, um, and thank you to those two guests and thank you to my upcoming guests. Uh, yeah, so we've got lots to talk about on this hour, but um, right now I want to talk with the esteemed Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's all about leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, trainer, writer. She's all over social media. You will want to follow her. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell, and she joins me on the line to talk about childhood obesity. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. I just got to say, you have like the best topics. I, your next segment sounds amazing. Not that this isn't amazing, but love it. <laughs> oh, which ones? The, the sex positions? Positions. Steph knows the positions. Listen, these are brand new. You know, we can't let things get stale. Okay. <laughs> oh, definitely. I fully agree. <laughs> these are like you have never heard of these. Okay. <laughs> I promise you. Okay. <laughs> I promise you. And I didn't really have to dig that deep either. Anyway, <laughs> right now, you know, body image mm-hmm. segue back to childhood obesity. It's a serious problem mm-hmm. in the U.S. and Canada. It yep. puts children and adolescents at risk for poor health. And it is so shockingly high, the prevalence of obesity between kids age two to 19 in the years 2017 to 2020 was 19.7%. Nearly 20% of our children are obese. And obesity-related conditions include high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, breathing problems like asthma, sleep apnea, joint problems. Did we ever think we were going to be talking about this in children, A pre- something that is preventable? What are your thoughts on Oh, this is obesity. It's honestly, I've seen it from early on in my career, and it's becoming more and more prevalent and normalized, right? And I think Uh the new guidelines has really said, okay, enough of this wait and see stuff. Let's take this seriously and have a very comprehensive, holistic approach to this challenge. So I'm frankly not surprised we're here. Like, if you look at obesity, even as adults, I think it's between obesity and obesity overweight we're looking at two-thirds of adults so shocking we'll start some, yeah exactly right so not shocking it is. at all but it's a, uh-huh. it's a large number but it, I, I, i've been seeing this for a long time and i'm sure you've seen it too and it's sad uh-huh. it is and it but it's a condition it's a disease actually obesity is a disease and you know i read a book one time called the overfed head and mm. you know and that talked about you know, it's not just a diet that people need. No. You know, people need good nutrition, exercise, mm-hmm. choosing low glycemic foods that are high in protein, mm-hmm. not choosing, um, I, I, I don't even eat them, so I can't even think of what they're called, but like chips and, you know, Twinkies. popcorn, and <laughs> Twinkies, devil dogs. I mean, I did yeah. see... I did see uh, ring dings or something on a shelf and I thought I'd love those, but no, um, you know, junk food, basically, you know, there's an overconsumption of junk food or just to keep yeah. kids happy, you know, is, is to feed them. But, you know, there, this is a, a multidisciplinary approach. Would you, would you agree? And it starts with education about nutrition. 
100%. And that's why I refer to that holistic approach. It's that whole system. Like, it's not just the child, it's the family, it's the community, it's the lifestyle, it's the modeling, it's the getting all those allied professionals together to treat this as, like you said, it is a chronic illness. Like, it truly is. And it starts early in childhood. So we're seeing. It does. I mean, it, it, it is very, very difficult because oftentimes the the junk food is priced, you know, it hits socioeconomic groups as well because junk food is cheaper than, than good food, than, you know, nutritious food um, oftentimes, or kids don't get lunches at home or they're not even having breakfast at home and that can alter their metabolism. And then they may not have money for lunch or there may not be school programs that provide lunches yeah. for kids. There's a stigma associated with that. I mean, yeah. we really have to get on this uh, issue uh, of yeah. childhood obesity. Otherwise, our, talk about our health care system falling apart. If we're treating kids with hypertension and high cholesterol. Diabetes and- early on. Yeah, absolutely. And sleep apnea. So what mm-hmm. is so how would you treat uh, a child, say a, a, an eight year old child comes in, you know, eating a, a big bag of gummy bears or something. You see that mm-hmm. in your waiting when you're waiting room <laughs> and and the parents maybe are obese or overweight and there's, you know, not a lot of exercise going on. How, how do you address that and maybe the mom or the dad says, you know, I, I suffered with this as a child and I don't want my child to suffer this way. Yeah. Because not to say that people who are overweight or obese aren't healthy or can't be healthy, but it's just when it impacts their health. Yeah. So first is empathy, right? And being comfortable with the conversation. Also, we all have to be checking our bias and how we come across. So really just be like, hey, you know, hopefully it's a child that you know, a family that you're familiar with. And just, you know, just notice that, okay, how are, this, how are the candy? What flavor is that? Like, show interest in what they're doing. What's their favorite, you know? I joke about and call them my vitamin C, vitamin candy, right? So I, I use humor when I talk about delicate things. And then I, you know, as, as much as I love candy, I know that it's not always the best for us. And then, you know, talk about reasons why. And then say, you know, is that something that you would like us to talk about how we can improve you know, diet choices and hopefully get some buy-in. And like, this is a reason why, you know, it might affect your baseball game. If it's a kid that likes baseball or something like that, get buy-in and then over visits, because this is not a one-time visit, start having that discussion, right? Get them Mm -hmm. in, get, getting, understanding their social circumstance, because not every family can spend hours with a dietitian every week or has money for nutritional, a formal program. So you really have to understand your, patient, the resources that they have access to, what you can bring to the table, and really have that whole person, system-wide approach to help them and their family and support them. And what do you think of, I mean, I always like the stepwise approach. What do you think of, and I do a lot of these in my clinical practice, um, self-monitoring, like completion of a, you know, I often have them do a a bladder diary or a bowel diary um, or or a nutrition diary. What do you feel, how do you feel about, you know, completing a a diet and or exercise record or diary? I think being aware of what you're eating is important because oftentimes we over underestimate what we're doing. Right. So it's a good tool. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely something you could use in this process. So, mm-hmm. 
I've definitely used it with for with obesity and other conditions in the lives of my patients and even myself. So just that awareness is important. Mm-hmm. And and what about we're at the beginning of the year and a lot of people are setting goals. You know, what do you think about goal setting and 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 if if you feel it's good, how you know how lofty should the goal be? How how much of a goal is it? Yeah. Smaller chunks, and you know we we take steps along the way and applaud our our success at the end of the week yeah. or at the end of the day. Yeah. So you break it down in chunks, and then you look at the process. I like to look at systems. What systems do we need to change or implement in our lives that's going to help with gross improvement, not just the weight, but other areas? What habits? What things do you have to have in place to keep? you going because goals are great but goals are often short-lived like you reach a goal and then you need to lose the goal and then you add it back usually most people gain the weight back but how can we change our response to movement how can we change our relationship with food how can we change our relationship with gatherings of family and friends and what that entails so really looking mm-hmm. at the bigger picture right then focusing on you haven't had your calories for the day or too many or you haven't got your steps in. So breaking it down in chunks and enjoying the process, I like to say success is a journey, not a destination. Whether it's monitoring your weight, your blood pressure, whatever it is, it's a journey. And I want them to enjoy the journey because these tools that they're going to apply are going to be applicable to other areas of their life. So that's how I look at it. I look at it as a, as a higher level, but also each step you celebrate. You know, you celebrate the wins. I think so. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, this isn't just for children. This is for adults as well who, yeah. who need to self-regulate behavior and, and re- learn to resist that temptation. I mean, I know that the holidays are tough for me. I love sweets. I love all the fabulous food and, you know, mm-hmm. I like parties. <laughs> Fortunately, the pandemic has prevented me from going to a few parties <laughs> normally that I would be. But um, but I remember when, when cocktail parties or Christmas parties were um, a plenty before the pandemic, I would say to myself, look, you've eaten all of this stuff before. <laughs> you don't need mm. to try those Nanaimo bars. You don't need to have that cake. You don't need to have those Christmas cookies. You don't need to have whatever it was. Um, and, and that kind of helped me that a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is like, which I think is, is very important in, um, in this subject as well. Something I saw that I wanted to mention before we go to break Dr. Mitchell on Instagram, I think I saw it, was mm. that Ozempic is in short supply. It's actually yeah. on the short supply list um, for the U.S. Um, and I'm, I'm certain the same for Canada. And so people need Ozempic. It's a diet. It's a medication for diabetes. Uh, but a lot of people are taking it and getting it prescribed for weight loss. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? I think it's an amazing dr- a drug and it- so we know that having the extra weight is a prelude to potential diabetes. We just have to figure out the distribution system of this of this drug. Um, if we can prevent diabetes, great. And we know that this is a chronic illness, this obesity thing. If you stop taking the medications, even with mm-hmm. the best of lifestyle choices, the weight goes back up. So that's what we got to recognize. Like, someone with hypertension. They could do everything right, but if they stop taking their pills, the weight, the blood pressure goes up. We have to recognize obesity in many regards is this is very similar. So I I feel like there's a bigger there's a there's an opportunity to um, fix this drug shortage, quote unquote. You know, 
look, there's a Tylenol shortage. So what does that tell you? Um, I I think it's a great drug. There's a lot of promise. We just have to understand how this drug works and how it's meant to be used. And it's meant to be used long term with other therapies involved. Wow. So it, it is yeah. off label for people who want to lose weight. It, currently, it's off label, and um, which it's not, in, which means it's not indicated for that. But if you stop taking the drug, even if you change your uh, into your diet. I suppose, and have low glycemic index or do the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet, you yeah. will still gain weight? Yeah, because a lot of people have been doing all those diets and didn't lose weight, right? So now we're just Interesting. giving yeah. them a drug that finally tells a pardon that like, it just regulates what's missing, gives them that key. It's indicating wow. weight loss in the U.S. called Wajovi. So it's, it's like the same drug, different name. So wow. it works. Interesting. It's, a, it's yeah. an amazing drug. We could talk more later, I, just I guess. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We're talking about all sorts of things. But right now, um, I did want to talk about a picture, the misinformation based on a picture of football great DeMar Hamlin and his sailing lock and also the ambulance drive. And so this is around the conspiracy theorists who are not believing that he actually had a cardiac arrest on the football field. They didn't trust the ambulance uh, driver. We'll talk to Dr. Tommy Mitchell about that and also the saline lock. We, we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately, Dr. Mitchell, but um, I don't know if you saw this article about, you know, fact checking. Uh, yeah. They quoted a nurse practitioner from uh, NYU, Dr. Mary Brennan, uh, just about, you know, looking at a picture and they're questioning whether this is real. I mean, what what is going on in the minds of people? It's just ridiculous, honestly. I think this is just desperate desperation, trying to get attention. Um, this is negative. I I condone. Like it's just, it's not good. Like the the man collapsed on the field. Like we all saw. It. Look, we all saw it, and it's and football is a high risk for that happening. Like many people have collapsed post. He was he was tackling somebody, right? You get struck in the chest. Your heart does yes. can be impacted negatively. So. It's just a, it's just, it's just a disappointment that somebody would go off and just trying to get attention to themselves and take away from the family and the grief that they went through, the just the stress of everything and the fans. So, yeah, over a picture, really, a picture. Like, yeah, and the picture yeah. was posted by a Kelly Marie Brady and on January eighth, and it actually implied that the image and possibly Hamlin's condition was was fake. And they they said, "I'm not too familiar with hospital protocol." That's the first problem. But would they no not kidding. have his IV hooked up? And um, as I mentioned, Dr. Mary Brennan, the director of adult gerontology, acute care nurse practitioner program at NYU Rory Myers College Nursing and a nurse caring for hospitalization, hospitalized patients with cardiovascular disease actually debunked that. And, and she said, well, a picture may be worth a thousand words. A photo may not provide all the information and a reader, a reader desires and may give rise to misinformation as a result. And, and, you know, she goes on to talk about how they questioned the appearance of the small catheter, but then um, actually described what a saline lock is and where it's placed. It's placed in a small vein and it provides a route for doctors and nurses to administer IV fluids or medication. So someone may yeah. not need continuous IV fluids, but they might need antibiotics or emergency meds. And so exactly. you know, here we are going to incredibly busy people. Let me tell you, I imagine that nurse practitioner, Dr. Mary Brennan, is incredibly busy and having to write this out, you know, and explain this to whom? To somebody who doesn't have any hospital experience. Anyway, exactly. I, I hear you. But, I, mean, I hear you. Yeah. 
I mean, do you think we only have about a minute left, but do you think, um, you know, where this conspiracy theorist and the other thing is like taking a picture and posting it on Facebook anyway, <laughs> just drives me crazy. It's wrong on many levels, but yeah, they, it takes, even for everything to happen, there's so much training that goes into that moment. Assessing each patient is different and what you have to work with. People need to understand, like, it is a science, like respect the people on the field who are doing their job, right? You don't know, like, they don't know. No, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so much of science has been questioned in the last two years. It's just unbelievable. Well, Dr. Tommy Mitchell, thank you so much. And I'm glad that you rely on science. Oh, yes. (laughs) And and until next week. All right. Stay stay tuned for the sex positions, whether you have a medical condition or not. (laughs) It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. This is the time of the evening that you all go to bed with me. Well, lately, I was just saying to somebody, I'm going to bed with Harry every <laughs> every night. He's a spare, but it's okay. I'm enjoying that book very much. And I just wanted to give you a little something. I, I uh, deal with a lot of patients and I do a lot of talks uh, uh, for different medical conditions, for different companies. And so I'm, I'm constantly educating people about sexual health, intimacy, relationships, body image. Um, And, you know, when people are diagnosed with certain conditions or they may require a device, for example, like uh, an ileostomy or a colostomy, or they may sustain a spinal cord injury, or they may experience a neurological disease, you know, there's, or even cancer, you know, people are thinking, how am I going to live? And how, how am I going to survive this? That's sort of their number one thing. And then they think, well, what's, how's my life going to change? And then it's, it's almost like, because I think there's so much stigma associated with sex still that, you know, people are afraid to ask or they're afraid to talk about it. This is often something that I'm asked to do to healthcare professionals, as well as the public, and just to speak about how do I talk to my doctor about sex? How do, how do I talk to my patients about sex? How do I raise that subject? Because some, some people feel that they would be, some healthcare professionals, some physicians feel like it's an embarrassing subject and they, they don't want to embarrass their patients. And, and also by the same token, uh, patients, I hear from them that they say they feel that if they ask about sex, that they're, um, that they would be very embarrassed about it or that the doctor might judge them about that, or they don't want to make the doctor uncomfortable, but it's just such a very important aspect of, of healthcare, of, of medical care that, that often goes underlooked, uh, uh, under, it's underestimated, it's overlooked, and it's seen as not important, but it's so incredibly important to people that they have a healthy, intimate life. And, you know, it's associated with better sleep and reduction in anxiety, healthier relationships, um, better mood, uh, weight loss. There's so many associations that a good sex life will have. And and you know what? You can have sex with yourself or you can have sex with somebody else. Um, or if you don't desire to have sex, that's absolutely fine. If you're in a relationship and, and both of you do not want to have sex, that's also fine. There's no issue there. Um, but it's, you know, we have to talk about ways that people can have sex outside of straightforward, penetrative, missionary position sex, um, because it's, you know, it, it, 
people may not be able to engage in sex that way. And, and the first part that we need to address is the other erogenous zones throughout the body. And, you know, that takes exploration. Everybody's erogenous zones are felt differently. And so that's what makes this fun is that exploration. And so that's the first place that I would, would begin. But whether you have uh, an ileostomy or whether your spinal cord injured or whether you have um, a another neurological disorder or you have osteoarthritis or you have another pain condition, um, maybe you need to hit two new hips or something, um, you know, and you're, you're suffering with pain in that way. Maybe you're, um, it's, it's temporary. And so these are just temporary measures. Um, but even if that's not the case, it's not never a bad idea to, um, change things up in the bedroom. You know what I mean? Spice it up, make things just a little bit more exciting, whether you've been diagnosed with a medical condition or not. Um, and so, you know, right out of the gates, we're going to go with oral sex. That is something that a lot of people are curious about. A lot of people are fearful of, a lot of people are afraid of, but oral sex can be extremely pleasurable and very satisfactory. But no oral sex position list would be complete without the classic face sitting option. And so that a less mobile partner would lie on their back and what they is deemed, you know, we call it kind of the dead turtle position. And so once you're on your back and comfortable, have your partner straddle your face so that you're um, enjoying the pleasures of oral sex. Um, if you're the partner with the limited mobility, it's incumbent that your partner has great communication skills because they are going to have to do a lot of the physical work required to get into that position. So it's very important. Communication is so important in every aspect of relationships and in particular in satisfactory sexual relationships as well. And, you know, we don't talk about 69 too often although it's part of my password. I'm kidding. Anyway, it's very uh, possible to enjoy the 69 position if you're in a chair or you have other mobility issues to work around. So have the less mobile partner lay on their back and then the more mobile partner straddles um, their, the less mobile partner. Um, and basically the kisser. So if either partner's neck mobility doesn't allow you to do that, um, you can, there are some devices and some chairs that you can choose to get into this position and increase the intimacy. So there are lots of devices you can look on or, um, you know, comfortable chairs and pads and positions that will help you with um, the 69 position. The sideways 69 will also help you to simultaneously make love to each other um, using your mouths. And it, but it doesn't require the same degree of strength and mobility that the routine um, 69. Is 69 routine? Anyway, the regular 69 requires. So both people lie on their sides in the spooning position and their heads are in opposite directions. And, and so from here, you can um, actually um, help to pleasure each other and you know, and you can do it at the same time if that if that's your vibe. 
Um, but you can also bring in an oral sex stimulator toy like the Womanizer. Yes, one of my favorite um, sex toys. And there's, you know, for people who do enjoy penetrative sex and feel that that is um, the be all, end all, um, you know, you of course want to keep that, you know, top of mind, if you will. Um, you can utilize sex wings and slings. There's all sorts of different um, products to help with um, you to continue with penetrative sex if that's the way that you want to go. And so sex wings are great devices that are they're designed to help the receiver's body get into positions that are well received, if you will, where you can be on the receiving end. Um, whereas the doggy style requires that the receiver physically hold themselves up. And these are positions that sometimes people with certain medical conditions are not able to do. They're not able to hold themselves up. So that's why uh, sex wings can help uh, people do that. There's also the modified missionary. And the so if there's a partner that has limited mobility and they may need to sit on the edge of uh, the bed um, or a flat surface, the kitchen island, whatever floats your boat, um, the penetrating partner can position themselves just between the legs. And then the person with the limit limited mobility can rest their ankles up on their partner's shoulders or on a chair behind their partner. And uh, there's, of course, another twist on that missionary position, which is the lift and lay. And it's um, these are missionary variations that allow you to make contact because kissing is so important in the relationship. And it also frees up your hands for that self, that exploration, that touching, that rubbing, the holding a vibrator. And it doesn't demand a lot of hip flexibility. And there's a lot of people that need a lot of hips these days and they're waiting in line for those surgeries. So that is a problem as well. You know, the just in general, sexual preferences of people who have limited mobility, you know, are as varied as the preferences for those who are able-bodied. Um, so it's a good idea to explore, do some research, reach out, ask some questions, but allow yourself to expand the definition of sex first and foremost. You know, we've, we've been taught to conceptualize sex as a super limiting experience. And that limits pleasure and the fun and the ability to connect with another human in, in that intimate and sensual way that is just so important. Don't forget to use some lube. It's the most underutilized sexual tool for people all across the ability and mobility spectrum. It's essential for all bodies and it can increase the fun. It can actually increase your, um, experience, your experience with orgasm. And if you use a mobility aid, use it to your benefit. If you have a wheelchair, a cane, a walker, or another mobility type of aid, you know, find a way to eroticize that during sex. I also want to talk about people whose body images have potentially have changed. So people who are living with a stoma. So somebody who's had to have an ileostomy or an ostomy because sex may change when you have a stoma, but there's lots of covers for the bags. There's, I mean, you know, it can make this fun. Naming your stoma can help with communication and removing that awkwardness. Keep in mind that spontaneous thing might be a thing of the past, but guess what? Spontaneous thing is really for the movies. We've been planning sex for a long time. Um, you know, 
people with an ileostomy or some type of colostomy or a bag, you know, they need to empty their bag before they have sex, but it's not a big deal. And you, you want to think of it as the same as going to the bathroom or freshening up, brushing your teeth, whatever. Um, you know, you want to stop the bag from flapping around. And so there are certainly um, smaller bags with caps. There are specialty wraps and belts for people. And then there's that worry about the scent. Um, but most bags come with a charcoal filter, and that helps with the release of gas and the scent as well. And then, of course, positioning, what your body is physically able to do and what feels good is different from person to person. So don't think that there's anything wrong with you. There's really no set of good positions and bad positions if you have a stoma. It's about trying easy, gentle. Um, if you are a male and have sex with men, never penetrate a stoma. That is critically important. But, you know, with all of these issues, you want to take things slowly at first and you want to communicate. Wraps and things for people with ileostomies will come in handy, especially when you're utilizing the doggy position or 69 as well. So, Anyway, it's, it's, these are changes when, when medical things happen, when we get these certain medical conditions, we realize that, you know, things change and, and change in ways that we don't really realize. But you can also go onto the internet, onto all these Instagram posts, TikTok, and find out how other people are dealing with it as well. Ostomates is one of the great ones as well. Anyway, um, you know what, your sex life is not lost and it's important to talk about it. And just to say to your doctor, hey, I'm curious, have you, has anybody in your practice had issues around sex? By the same token, you, as a physician, you can say to your patients, hey, some people in my clinical practice have had issues around sex when they've been diagnosed with whatever it is that they have been diagnosed with. Anyway, feel free to email me anytime, nursetalk at hotmail.com. There's so many different resources for all of these uh, products out there. And uh, there's definitely something for you. But shake it up a little bit and try, try different things and move on. And so once again, it is time to end the program. But I really appreciate you all listening to me, tuning in tonight. Um, I did want to mention that uh, there's a lot of talk out there about Prince Harry's book, Spare. And there's been a lot of judgment online and a lot of negativity. And, you know, he's had the, the big media blitz and people are upset that he might be making money through this or sharing family secrets. Um, is he sharing family secrets or is he just giving us a bird's eye view into what life was like at the palace? The truth, in fact, uh, his truth in any case. But I think, you know, there's been so many studies that have demonstrated that you know, we're happier if we're more empathic and we're kinder to people and if we have compassion and, you know, just having a little kindness in your heart. And, we're, you know, Harry walked in his shoes. We did not walk in his shoes. And some people are, you know, adamant that, oh, the royal family is is so right and he never should have said anything or done anything. And, and you know, some of the things that he did say on the media tour, like um, the issue about the, the bridesmaids' dresses at the wedding and, um, you know, was that really a big deal? Is it... Uh, um, Megan asking Kate to borrow her lip gloss, you know, how big of a deal is that? We have issues with in-laws and divorce and, but there's just so much judgment and people rush to judgment. And, and to be honest with you, I've just started reading the book Spare. And I have to say, I am pleasantly surprised. Even when I ordered it, I actually ordered it. I was at a hotel and I said to the person at the hotel, you know, what's it when they delivered the 
box <laughs> to me. I said, you know what's in this? And they said, no. <laughs> I said, it's spare. And they kind of looked at me like spare. Never heard of it. And I said, well, do you know Prince Harry? And they said, no. And then I said, the royal family? And they said, no. And so I, you know, for a book that has, you know, sold millions and millions of copies on day one, there is somebody in the world that hasn't got a clue about who the royal family is and who Prince Harry was. But they said, I'm going to have to look this up. Um, and I even felt a little bit like, oh, this, is this going to be trash? Did I, you know, I don't really like to read trash, but I just felt compelled to read it. And I was a little bit like, oh, I don't even think I'll bother. And then I have to say, it was, it got me right in the first, you know, 10, 20, 50, 60, 100 pages. I'm in. It's it's historical. It gives us a bird's eye view into his life, uh, what it was like. It is a, a world, well, very different than the world that I grew up in. I don't know about you, um, you know, but um, it's very interesting. It's historical. It talks about um, their ancestors, the kings and queens. Uh, you know, it does talk uh, quite a bit about his feelings about his mother and grief and his loss and all of that. And so I think, honestly, I really wish that the online world would just be a little kinder to Harry. He suffered. He has grieved. He has processed it. He's sought comfort through drugs and illicit activities. And, and he admits to all that and he needed to go through all of that. And that's that part. And then he married a woman who a lot of people, and I totally understand this because I do not believe in family estrangement whatsoever, but it looks as though it appears this way. I don't know if it's true, but it's a perception that many people have. In fact, I have, I know somebody who is estranged from her son and daughter-in-law and three grandchildren, one set of twins, and she's actually never met them. And it's a patient of mine and it's just horrible. And I've, I've had other patients who've told me about family estrangement and they've had to go on antidepressants because their sons, and it's more common when sons marry women, this family estrangement. And so they actually feel, well, I only spoke to one of them, but I'm sure the two of them feel this way. Um, they feel that you know, that Megan has a big role here in pulling her away from, pulling Harry, sorry, away from his family. But, you know, that, that might be the perception. And I think that's why Harry wrote the book Spare and it's all on his own and it's just his picture on the, on the front of it. But I think if we could be a little kinder in the world and a little bit under, more understanding, you know, we would live in a better place. So to that end, I'd like to end the program with a little poem for you, a creed by Edgar Guest. Let me be a little kinder. Let me be a little blinder to the faults of those around me. Let me praise a little more. Let me be when I am weary, just a little bit more cheery. Let me serve a little better those that I am striving for. Let me be a little braver when temptation bids me waver. Let me strive a little harder to be all that I should be. Let me be a little meeker with the brother that is weaker. Let me think more of my neighbor and a little less of me. Let me be a little sweeter, make your life a bit completer by doing what I should do every minute of the day. Let me toil without complaining, not a humble task disdaining. Let me face the summons calmly when death beckons me away. And that poem is from Breakfast Table Chat 19 
14. It's now in the public domain. And so I wanted to leave you with that because I think in life we get busy, we're rushed, we've been through this pandemic. We, a lot of people have issues with self-esteem. They have had adverse childhood events, much like Harry has had. They've had issues with seeking comfort through alcohol and drugs and sex and shopping and chocolate and food because they're trying to heal themselves. And I think if we're just kinder on a global scale, just start with yourself. Just be a little nicer, be a little blinder to the faults of those around you and praise others a little bit more. If you praise somebody else, it does not mean you're not as good and nothing wrong with choosing to be cherry. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.